Welcome to the Learning Exchange, where L&D and HR professionals can dig deep into the ever-changing landscape of online learning and talent development. Each episode, we'll explore innovations in learning and discuss best practices with special guests from inside and outside the learning world. L&D is evolving, and the Learning Exchange is here to help you keep pace. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Learning Exchange. On this episode... I want to touch on how we can best prepare for success with our implementation initiatives. Now, this could be a new learning technology implementation, could be perhaps the implementation of a new training program, or even providing support across multiple business units to implement a new process. I think in all of these cases and more, learning and development is uniquely equipped to provide value. There are a ton of different methodologies out there that you could leverage. So I'm not going to get into the mechanics of what the, uh, let's say, project management, process management, or implementation uh, methodologies are, but rather I want to just dive into a couple of the nuances that some of those uh, best practices might leave out. At the end of the day, when we're talking about implementation activities, It all comes down to the people. There is a process component. In many cases, there is a technology component. Uh, But the people is where the success of a project, of an implementation really comes from. And who better to understand how to motivate people, how to drive engagement, and even navigating change management than learning and development. So we start... Um, always in our projects, it's understanding the needs and then documenting the requirements, right? We get everything down on paper. Let's check that box. We all know, and, and I would expect that we all are doing that consistently when we have a project or an implementation ahead of us. Um, what I'd like to touch on here as it relates to the documentation, sometimes it can get overwhelming. Um, sometimes we can get this just massive list of requirements And then it can be a very big challenge figuring out how do we go, how in the world do we go and do all these things with only this many people and only these these many dollars? Um, I think we can think about grabbing all of our requirements and then put them in buckets. What are all of the global requirements? And really start your effort there. What are the things that are going to apply to anyone and everyone that's impacted by this implementation? Get that list of things together. And uh, this can somewhat unify everybody who participates in the project to the mission and the purpose of the the implementation. And then next, come back and layer in the department-specific or the team-specific or other uh, subgrouping-specific requirements, things that are only applied to a small subset of the population. Uh, Here, you might end up with multiple lists that emerge, but again, it helps you better understand what are the things that affect everyone and what are the things that affect a smaller group of people? We still have to keep our eyes on both, um, but it helps us better manage the uh, navigating the journey. Once we get all of that stuff documented, then we need to go back through and really triage the requirements. So figure out out of all the things, regardless of whether they're global or local, um, are they critical or nice to have? When we know When we designate something as critical, it is also important 
to go through the exercise of documenting and discussing why this thing is critical. They get more specific about what it is, know why it's critical and know when it's critical. So yes, this thing might be critical for the success of the project, but it might be critical six months after go live. So we might be able to reprioritize that item and put it in a future phase of work, which then streamlines what we run toward as that first big launch um, activity. After we've gone through this process with documenting and triaging our requirements, we now somewhat uh, have a roadmap. We now have a list of things that, that we can orient ourselves around as it relates to this project or this implementation. We know what we're trying to accomplish. We generally know the sequence of what we're trying to accomplish. And now we can go plot the course. Next is where we start to really dig into the meat of my, my discussion today, and that is around the people. How do we engage the people? What kinds of people should we engage and why? I think far too often it is easy for, um, for us to get locked into just identifying the active core project team. Um, who are the people that are going to join me in this effort who are going to be responsible for executing specific actions, tasks, or deliverables? Um, right. If we're thinking about an LMS implementation, that might be who's my IT person, who's my HR resource, who's my learning team person. And um, if you've got a content team, who's my content resource? And that's about the extent of it. Um, I always lobby for building a broader project roster, which does include those key team, key team members that are taking the action. They're driving parts of the project. But then we also need to get the key decision makers involved, uh, knowing who's going to help us make decisions, who's going to help us keeping this project oriented to the strategic goals and objectives of our company. And then who are the stakeholders? Um, those people who might have some stake in the project, either uh, they're contributing feedback, they're contributing input from a process perspective, or they're being impacted by the outcome. And also your influencers. Um, I think we should always be deliberate and committed to the success of the initiative and be honest um, in our communication, help people understand we really are trying to do this thing for the greater good. So we wanna make sure we get all the people's perspectives reflected. Now, when we get into, um, let's go outside the, the key team members and the decision makers, and let's start thinking about those other individuals that may not have, uh, they may not have process ownership necessarily. They may not be um, owners of a work stream or owners of a particular piece of the project, but they are your um, available pool of talent that can really help you tap into and understand the organization. So I like to first go through and, and build my list of the champions. So these are the people that are always noted as cheerleaders, they're maybe their current champions of the project, they're advocates of, of trying to solve the problem we're trying to solve. Uh, do you have individuals in your company that are always all in with full enthusiasm? It's a good, good marker for someone that could be considered one of these champions. Uh, they might be more subtle in their championship approach, but um, in general, this bucket of people, this group of people that we're looking to build are those people that are advocates 
um, who are going to lean in and provide support to the effort. Then I like to go after a team of the anti-champions. So this um, population of employees, I typically look for and listen for the people that are always in that, well, let's just sit and wait. Um, Let's wait and see kind of mindset. Maybe you've got individuals in the company that always challenge change that is presented to employees. They're the ones that are back there chanting, let's just see how long this lasts. Or, "Eh, yeah, I've been through this before. It's just the flavor of the month. Let's hold out long enough and it'll go away like all the other times. Um, This group of people sometimes are very visible and overt in their actions. Sometimes they're a lot more subtle. But I think it is critical that we have full representation from the anti-champions as they were, or the anti-change agents scoped into the project from the very beginning. They have a really valuable opinion and they have a perspective which reflects a slice of your employees that are always underrepresented. Uh, We always try and take the path of least resistance. It's just part of human nature. And so I think it can be easy for us to know quickly who are the people that are going to support my cause. I don't have to spend time and energy trying to get them bought in. I need them to provide momentum. Uh, But I also need that other group of people who are very resistant to change. And then there's this third group of people, which may or may not be reflected in your team of champions and anti-champions, and that's the influencers. So it's critical to understand the sphere of influence as you're building project teams, as you're trying to build synergy to deliver an implementation or an initiative successfully. If you only have champions found in your influencer group, then the initiative is just undermined from the very beginning because people are going to be suspicious of a project which is only filled with a bunch of cheerleaders who absolutely love what's happening. It can't be real. It can't be trusted if there's not at least one person pushing against it, right? So be brave, ensure that you've got some really visible anti-champions on that project as well. If you can convert them to an advocate through your process, that's going to carry a substantial weight that will drive engagement uh, through their network. It'll help drive adoption. And ultimately, that's your path to effectively changing hearts and minds. You, right, like I said, you may or may not have in your champions and anti-champions, you may or may not have influencers. So make sure you think about that influence um, piece really carefully. Because uh, we want to be doing these, these projects in a way that drives success, in a way that ultimately drives change and transformation for our businesses. Uh, but it can be really difficult if we can't find a way to get everybody rowing in the same direction. And so you've got to look at what where the influence is coming from in the organization and strategically bring these individuals into the fold of the project. Now we take all the requirements that we've put together and we circulate them through the entire group to get feedback, to get validation, to get input. Try to do this very early on. Um, The earlier you do this and the larger the group of people, to some degree, that you can run this through the more time you save in the long run because you're identifying barriers and obstacles and resources and other things that might be impacted by or that might impact the project 
and you can get ahead of those things. Uh, the next tip is really just to be realistic. Organize a plan for phases. Uh, many times we delay the launch of something until it's perfect because we want all the pieces to be together. We want it all. To, we think that this is what the final package looks like. So we just want to deliver the final package. And that can cause delays. That can sometimes cause us to miss striking while the iron is hot, while there's momentum and engagement, um, or even in, with excitement. So take the opportunity to build the MVP model where you can deploy the things that matter most in that first phase. Like, how do I get to a place where I can show that we are taking action, we are driving change, we are delivering something that's needed? It may not be the whole thing, but we're delivering something now so that you can see we're making progress, we're moving forward toward that goal. That's what we consider phase one. and. Like I said, it doesn't have to be 100% of the total projected impact of the project. It just has to be enough to show that we're making an impact and that impact is very well thought out. Don't be afraid to communicate often and share that maybe this project is not just a one and done where, yay, we implemented and we're done. But instead, use it as an opportunity to reinforce this idea that we're always learning, that we're always growing, and that we should always continue to evolve. Uh, when it comes to the communication and just the planning and the strategy and the execution of communication, this is another place where I think time and time again, uh, implementations fail. Technically, the team is working really hard on the project. We're hitting all the milestones, we're hitting all the key dates, but we fail to tell people what's going on. We fail to tell them uh, why we're doing something and that we're doing something. Maybe we bundle it all up and it's kind of that last big push that goes out right as the project goes live. Um, we put in a new system, we're turning it on tomorrow. By the way, here's everything we did. Yay, tomorrow it's going to be different. Uh, that can be a lot for people to take in if they require more time to process. Not everybody thinks in the same way. Not everybody processes information in the same way. Not everybody navigates change in the same way. And so we have to be mindful of that and find ways to uh, bring people into the, the process along the way. Now, there's a few different ways that I've done this personally where I've seen success. And, and one note is... Uh, you know, maybe start by building excitement. So think about maybe it's at the very beginning when you are formulating the team. Maybe it's at the very beginning when you are starting to document requirements. But somewhere early on, start to plant the seeds and build excitement. Let them know that something is changing. The team is working on something exciting. Um, I've even seen as it relates to like an LMS implementation or a new learning program implementation, you can tie some gamification to the to the, the experience. Fun things can happen. Maybe plant some seeds, make it kind of a trivia mission. Um, uh, don't tell them what's happening, but drop seeds here and there and gamify the experience. Let people take guesses. Um, <clears throat> in any event, it's really just this long stretch of time before we launch that we should be focusing on building excitement and attention letting people know we're doing something. And then along the way, revealing a bit more and a bit more, it feels very organic and they feel somewhat connected to the experience. 
We should also make sure that our communication strategy involves cascading messages. Now, I am not a fan of letting this be using cascading as the only mechanism for communicating, but it's critical that you do have an opportunity to pre-seat the information with your leaders, having an opportunity to talk uh, with the top level of leaders in the organization, equip them with enough information to know what's happening, to have confidence in the direction, to be able to ask questions, puts them in a position to be able to be advocates for the effort, for the process, for the implementation. Uh, Having a couple of opportunities to check in with them, giving them a bit more information so they can in turn start to communicate to their teams and so forth and so on. Um, This allows kind of a, a, a groundswell to almost start happening. We get this excitement starting to build. We get some conversations starting to take shape, hopefully, in the cascading of messages, we're also opening up some feedback channels. Um, but this, again, allows your leaders to really be in a position of driving confidence and instilling confidence and trust in the process because they're involved. We should also make sure we find several opportunities for direct messaging from us to all employees. A lot of times, company cultures will dictate how much you can go to the masses. Uh, But I'm a a big believer that if we can go direct from the team that is driving the process, the implementation, the project to all employees, uh, we start to really make it feel like an inclusive environment. Sometimes if we just rely on the cascading of messages, it creates the wrong impression. It perpetuates the strict hierarchy Uh, where I can only speak to my boss and my boss is the one who has to speak to their boss. And ultimately over time, that starts to really have a negative impact on creativity, on innovation and collaboration. You start to get this uh, lack of trust between teams and the lack of trust in who I can talk to and where the information is coming from. So I think it's really good that you take the uh, cascading approach where you can impart some information to your leaders and let them really be advocates, but then go direct to employees as well. Um, They like to feel included and valued and heard. And one of the ways we can do this is by speaking directly to them, asking them directly for feedback. And the, the last piece in the communication is really making sure we look for every opportunity to connect feedback to action. Always try to work from a place of an intention to convert from feedback to action. As humans, I think we want nothing more at a basic level than to know that we're seen and heard and valued. And if we're asking for feedback, but we're not really ever connecting the dots and showing you how that feedback contributes to some action we're taking, then we're not really seeing or valuing our employees, we're hearing them, but we're not actually listening. We're not actually converting that information um, into some sort of action through processing. One of the quickest ways to build trust and confidence with employees is simply being able to demonstrate that we asked you for feedback, you gave us feedback, and we're taking action. And sometimes that action is that we're, we're opening conversations to discuss how we can approach something, It may not be that every piece of feedback can be converted into action in a way that the employee would expect, 
but letting them know we heard them, we're talking about things and keeping them plugged in so they can see those connection points is huge. And then the last tip that I have is really celebration. This is another place where I think we just get, we get too focused on the work, we get too focused on the process and hitting all the timelines and the budgets that we lose sight of the celebration and what that can do. Their celebrations in general are an important exercise to signal progress, to create a positive connection and experience with change, and just to have fun. Um, you can celebrate all the big things and the small things. Think of this as really, if you didn't have a chance to have fun in the process overall, if it was really just all about the business, this is where you can let loose with all the fun. Hopefully, you're weaving some of that fun in the communication. You're weaving some of that fun into the interactions within the project team members. Uh, but at the end of the day, celebrations is where you can just let loose. At a minimum, I have found that when I celebrate the milestones, uh, when I celebrate the launch, um, potentially of each phase of an implementation or a project, and then also celebrating this notion that we are continuing the work, um, celebrating the future work that we know is coming, can keep a nice balance for the team, for the company, kind of for everybody involved. Um, I particularly like closing a, um, so we, we pass a milestone, we pass a launch point and we celebrate that. Yay, the work is done. Look at how far we've come. I always like to bring a second celebration, which is designed to help people really embrace the future work and the future change. I think if we can celebrate all of that future stuff, it creates a really nice expectation for people that we should never stop learning. We should never stop growing. We should never stop evolving. At the end of the day, we are a collection of people at our organization and a collection of very different perspectives and experiences. And those things can always be fine-tuned to work better with one another, and we should always strive to do that. So always celebrate the future work to come.